Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 12, titled to our message this morning is The Right Side Up Kingdom. And as you're turning there, please remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word that you have in your hands and the word that you're about to hear uh, endures forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. God bless the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we of course thank you for this Lord's Day this morning, but we are very aware of how distracted our hearts can become. Lord, we are faced with two options this morning. Either we take the route of Mary where we sit at your feet and listen, and, and drink in your word and feast on the abundance of your house, Lord. Or we go the way of Martha and we find ourselves distracted with many things. Help us, Lord, this morning by your spirit to be like Mary. We have Martha in us. That's what our sinful nature will pursue. Even good things. So help us, Lord. Help us to sit at your feet now and listen to your son's word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. One of the ideas that has gripped evangelicalism's imagination for the last 40 years or so is this idea of an upside-down kingdom. The idea that the kingdom of God is completely opposed to the world's way of thinking. So the world looks at Christianity and it looks upside down. Jesus said things like, the greatest among you shall be your servant, Matthew 23, 11. Or whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it, Luke 9.24. Even the gospel itself looks upside down. Jesus conquered death by dying. Now, I think that that phraseology, upside down kingdom, is helpful as far as it goes, but I would suggest a slight spin on it. It's actually not the kingdom that's upside down. 
It's we who are upside down. The kingdom is right side up. The world is upside down. Uh, Think of the most fundamental miracle that Christ gives us, the new birth, regeneration. What happens at the new birth? A fundamental reorientation, a fundamental recreation. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will remove from your heart the stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. And that's what we sing, isn't it? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And when that happens to us, we discover that it wasn't God's kingdom at all that was upside down. It was we who were upside down. Now, the problem is, is that it often takes a long time to see, even as Christians, that it's not just our souls that were disoriented, but it was our whole manner of life. Uh, the Bible teaches that there is a Christian way to think about everything. Recall how chapter 15 ended in verse 58. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And last week, Paul applied that to money, that there is a Christian way to think about money. It's not your money. It's the Lord's money. And this week, we see that there is a Christian way to advance the kingdom of Christ in the world. So in order that our work would not be in vain, we must be governed by his plan, his plot line, and his priorities. And that's our our outline Kingdom plan, kingdom plot, and kingdom priorities. I I changed the last one this morning. Here's our big idea. Christ advances his kingdom according to his plan, his plot line, and his priorities. So let's look first of all at kingdom plan in verses 5 through 7. Paul says in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now we know for certain that Paul went on three missionary journeys. Most of our Bibles have those maps in the back of them so that you can see his arduous uh, travels. One author noted that Paul, according to these maps, would have traveled over 10,000 miles by foot. That's the equivalent of, of traveling from Los Angeles to New York four times on foot. I mean, truly we can say of Paul, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Nonetheless, as I prepared this week for this passage, it was a bit perplexing to me. Why would the Lord include Paul's travel itinerary as part of inspired scripture? Isn't there more important things to talk about? What can we learn 
from Paul's travel itinerary? Well, two things in particular. The first thing that we can learn is that Paul was a visionary. Paul was a visionary. Paul wrote this letter uh, from Ephesus, that's modern-day Turkey. Uh, But as he was in Ephesus, he had a carefully laid-out plan uh, for what he would, for where he would go next. Again, in verse 5, I will visit you, Corinthians, after I pass through Macedonia. Now, if you, if you can envision the map, he could have just sailed directly from the shores of Ephesus to the port in Corinth. Um, but his travel plans weren't merely for his own comfort or convenience. He wanted to pass through Macedonia. Why? Well, because he wanted to strengthen the churches there at Philippi and Thessalonica at the launch of his third missionary journey in Acts 18, 23, it says that he departed and he went from place to place, strengthening the disciples. In fact, that's why he wanted to go back to Corinth. Um, Verse six, he says, perhaps I will stay with you Um, or even spend the winter, for I I don't want to just see you in passing. I want to spend some time with you. Why was that important? Well, just look over one page in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15. He tells them why. I wanted to come to you so that you might have a second experience of grace. Uh, That's why Paul made travel plans spanning 10,000 miles. His plans were based on how he could be the greatest benefit to God's people. That's right-side-up thinking. John MacArthur says here, quote, the Christian who is motivated and consumed by God's love will see needs that are not yet filled and opportunities that are not yet met. He cannot help but planning ahead, looking for more ways to serve. So God inspired Paul's travel itinerary here to teach us how vital it is to plan for the kingdom, for the future. We all have plans of some sort, don't we? Um, Perhaps you have a five or ten year uh, career plan or you have a retirement plan or you have an education plan for your children. What makes Paul's plan so helpful is that his plans revolve around the kingdom. That should be the center of all of our plans. So, So ask yourself, how does taking this job or how does moving to this city, or how does marrying this person, or how does choosing this type of education, or how is investing in this business, how do those things advance the cause of Christ? It's a Christian way of thinking. Beloved, examine your heart. What's at the center of your planning? Do your plans revolve around the kingdom? Do you have a plan for strengthening the disciples of Christ? What is your grand vision in life? So that's the first thing that we learn from Paul's inspired travel plan, the importance of planning for the kingdom. 
The second thing that we learn is that though Paul was a visionary, he was also a slave. Look at the end of verse 7. After he declares all of his plans, he says, if the Lord permits. I would do all these things if the Lord allows it. In fact, this submission to the Lord is seen in all of his plans. In verse 6, he uses the language, perhaps I will stay wherever I go. And he learned this lesson from previous travels. On his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, the text says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then in verse 7, we read, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. In fact, this is the pattern throughout all the book of Acts. The movements of Paul and the other missionaries were entirely subject to the permission of the Lord. That brings us to our first principle this morning. The Lord is the Lord. And we are ultimately subject to his plan. The Lord is the Lord and we are ultimately subject to his plan. Though we ought to make plans to advance his kingdom, ultimately we are subject to his greater plan. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. As pastors, we speak to you and and know you and are intimately involved in in your lives. and, And we know that many of you are frustrated right now and you're disillusioned right now and you're disappointed with how your life is going right now. It's not going the way that you thought it would. Not going the way that you planned it would go. Why are you disappointed? I would would say that you have forgotten That the Lord is the one who is planning your life. Children, boys and girls, this is such an important principle. What happens when you hang upside down or stand on your head? Everything becomes distorted, doesn't it? Um, it? It may be fun at first, but what if... Someone forced you to live upside down all the time. Have you ever tried to drink a glass of water upside down? What about going to the bathroom? Eating a meal. You can't even do the basic things in life upside down. Life would be completely frustrating. See, the truth is, is you weren't made to live upside down. You were made to live right side up. So so here's a little challenge for your children. Next time you see your parents frustrated about life, just ask them a question. Mommy, Daddy, why are you living upside down? 
loved ones. Are you living your life the way that you want, the way that you desire, the way that you have planned? That's living upside down. That's the most frustrating type of life that you could ever live. And if that's you, then just ask yourself, take a hold of yourself. Who do you think you are? Have you forgotten what Scripture says? Listen to what James chapter 4, 13 through 17 says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Beloved, you are not in control. It's not you that determines your life ultimately. To live in forgetfulness of that principle or in rebellion to it is to invite all misery in your life. I actually believe that this is one of the most comforting truths in the Bible. Because God's plans for our life are actually infinitely better than what we could plan for our own lives. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Think about the Apostle Paul. What was Paul's great plan for his life? Well, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was planning to be the Hebrew of Hebrews. His plan was to continue to persecute the church of Christ from city to city. But the Lord didn't permit it. The Lord met this chief of sinners on the road to Damascus and he transformed him into the apostle to the Gentiles. And and Paul was so thankful that the Lord upset his apple cart. He said in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Don't you realize this about yourself? This is true for you. If you are frustrated or disappointed or disillusioned with your life, remember whose plan is governing you. Remember that his ways are higher than your ways. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So yes, let's make plans, but let's remember who the king is. Let's make plans and say, Lord willing. That's our first point. Let's look secondly at kingdom plot. Verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. In all, we know that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years, Acts chapter 20, verse 31. And here Paul tells them that he's not going to leave Ephesus and come until Pentecost. 
There was a Jewish population in Ephesus, and they still celebrated this Old Testament feast day. Paul wasn't constrained to stay because he thought he was obligated to keep it. Rather, Pentecost meant a bigger crowd, which meant a greater opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul was always looking to where he could do the most good for God and neighbor. But Paul gives us more information for why he was going to stay. Look again at verses 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for, or because, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. The Lord opened this wide door, uh, megas in the Greek, a mega door for gospel ministry in Ephesus. It's a opening a door. It's a metaphor, meaning that Gentiles were coming to saving faith in Christ. And you could see a glimpse of this success in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 specifically is where Paul was in Ephesus. Immediately when he came into the city, he preached Jesus to 12 men and wham, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They started speaking in tongues and prophesying. And then immediately after that, it says that he preached for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Imagine if all the residents of Boise heard the gospel. And it says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them, Acts chapter 19, 10 through 12. So this wasn't like the, the Benny Hen handkerchief. I mean, this was the Apostle Paul handkerchief, right? Then we read in verses 17 through 20 that fear fell upon all of them and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled and many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's why Paul was unwilling to leave Ephesus. The gospel was spreading like wildfire. But there was another reason he wanted to stay. Look at the end of verse 9. And there are many adversaries. In other words, if Paul were to leave now, not only would he miss this opportunity, but the enemies would, would enter and do much damage to his work. Acts chapter 19 records this event also. After the gospel took root, a riot broke out in the city. A man named Demetrius, the silversmith who made idols for the goddess Artemis, he stirred up the crowds 
He told the crowds in Acts 19.26 that this Paul had persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so immediately what happened was the city of Ephesus was struggling over a power shift. As more and more people were turning to the gospel, less and less people were worshiping this idol and violence lashed out in the city. That brings us then to our our second principle this morning. Faithful gospel work and opposition go together like hand in glove. Faithful gospel work and opposition go together. That's the plot line of the kingdom. Uh, John MacArthur says here, in the present age, there is no such thing as an authentic ministry without problems and opposition of some sort. Satan will see to it. A work that has little opposition from the antagonistic system of Satan is one that is doing a little work for the Lord. I think this is such helpful counsel because I think that there are many Christians today that equate opposition to mean that we are failing in our gospel witness. Uh, the great opposition from the world means that we, we must be doing something dreadfully wrong. Why aren't they receiving this? Why don't they love this? Why are they attacking me? And that's just not true. In fact, the opposite is true. Great opposition from the world means that we are doing something wonderfully right. Uh, now, now, don't mishear me. It's a fallacy to say that just because Person X is being opposed, therefore he must be faithfully preaching the gospel. That's not true. Maybe person X is harming children or embezzling money or um, being a selfish jerk. Opposition by itself isn't proof of gospel faithfulness, but gospel faithfulness will always produce opposition, always produce it. I think we have to think hard about this. Loved ones, God built opposition into the system. Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God declared to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity, conflict, opposition. Why did God do this? Why would God appoint there to be a holy war throughout the history of humanity? Why is that the plot line? My family um, likes to watch those cartoon shorts called um, How It Should Have Ended. And it takes movies and it puts it in comedic form, and it shows how the movie really should have ended. Uh, They did a take on Lord of the Rings. How should Lord of the Rings have really ended? Well, of course, it was nonsense for Frodo and the Fellowship 
to travel all that way by foot to Mordor to try and destroy the one ring. They met with all manner of death, all manner of hardship. They should have just called the eagles. The eagles, man, fly over Mount Doom, drop the ring in the volcano, it's over. Problem solved. Now, if Tolkien would have written his plot line like that, nobody would have ever even heard of him. That book would have never been published. There's no glory in that story. Loved ones, you have to understand that God is telling a story of glory throughout human history. And conflict is at the very center of it. Why? Because the greater the conflict, the greater the glory. Think of it. Think, think hard for a second. God could have prevented the fall of Adam and Eve. It had been so easy. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants. Why did he allow the fall? Because he wanted to show the bottomless ocean of his steadfast love. Yes, it would have been a great act of love to prevent Adam and Eve from falling into sin. But for God to send his only son into the world for sinners is an infinite act of love that we will never be able to comprehend. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Oh, dear saints, that's the plot line of all who believe. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 5. By faith, you were united to Christ as wetness is united to water, and no amount of opposition can ever separate you from Christ. The Father will overcome every obstacle to bring you home, even if that obstacle and that opposition comes from you. Jehovah overcame the murder and adultery of David. Jehovah overcame the denial of Peter. Jehovah overcame the cruel persecution of Paul. That's what the gospel does, my friend. It overcomes. Though we sin against thee, thou lovest us still. God ordained the saving power of the gospel to be conjoined with opposition so that we can really see that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus yet. And perhaps you've not trusted because you think that you're too great of a sinner. Because you have done terrible things, things which still haunt you to this day. And let me just tell you this, my friend, you are a great sinner. 
fact, the scripture says that you're rotten as hell. There's no use in denying that truth. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that God sent his only son into the world. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And he satisfied all the requirements of God's law. And then he was punished on the cross for wicked sinners like you. And then he raised three days later from the dead. What does this prove? This proves that God can overcome the shame of your sin. This is why he came to save. He came, to, he came into the world to save the chief of all sinners. As Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying that, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So salvation can be yours today. Cleansing can be yours today. A new spirit can be yours today. Jesus can be yours today. Just trust in him. The scripture says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's apply this principle before we move to our final point. Remember, fruitful gospel work and opposition go together. So first, let this truth comfort you in times of great opposition. Listen, in a battle, if a plane is, is bombing an enemy target over a thick jungle where it's difficult to see, one clue that you're over the, the right target is the amount of fire that you're receiving on the bottom of the ship. If you're taking shots, you're over the target. Paul was taking great opposition in Ephesus, and it meant that the gospel was hitting its mark. So don't interpret opposition as a failure, but as a success. Second, let this principle drive you to gospel work in hard places. Look for places to share Christ, especially where there are great problems. Great opposition is actually an open door. The gospel is the very power of God. Watch it work. Preach Christ to the darkness. That's where the plot line of the kingdom most shines. So that's our second point. Let's turn last to kingdom priorities. Kingdom priorities. Please look with me at verses 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, Paul first picked up Timothy in Acts chapter 16 on his second missionary journey when he was in Lystra and Timothy eventually became the first pastor in the city of Ephesus. It's believed that Timothy was the one that took this letter and hand-delivered it to the church in Corinth. Notice there are three commands that Paul gives here 
concerning Timothy. He tells the Corinthians, number one, put Timothy at ease. Number two, don't despise him. And number three, help him. Why would the Corinthians need to be told these things? Well, remember from chapter one that this church was a proud and divisive group of people. How would a proud people receive this letter of correction from this young pastor? Well, they would handle him very roughly. And so Paul tells them that they owe Timothy the same respect that they owe Paul. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 10. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy wasn't Paul's errand boy. Timothy wasn't doing his own thing. Rather, Timothy was an ambassador of the risen Christ. Timothy preached the same gospel that Paul preached. Next, Paul says in verse 12, Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Apollos was first mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. After Paul planted the church in Corinth, Apollos immediately followed on his heels. And so literally what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, that Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, is the, 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 the fact of how it played out. So remember, in Corinth, they started lining up behind their favorite leaders. They said, well, I like the first guy, Paul. And this other group said, well, I like the second guy, Apollos. So, so probably here in verse 12, when he says, now concerning our brother Apollos, he was responding to a question that the Corinthians themselves asked in their letter. What about Apollos? When is he coming back? And of course, their pride might have been further inflamed when it was Timothy, the one that delivered the letter, and they suspected that Paul was somehow holding out on them, that he was preventing Apollos, their favorite teacher, from coming and ministering to them. And so Paul assures them of the opposite. He says, no, I strongly urged Apollos to come. Paul wasn't jealous of Apollos. They were on the same team. They both worked for the Lord. However, Apollos was not willing to come at that time. Why? Well, I, I think maybe a safe conjecture is that Apollos didn't want to come until the letter had its intended effect. Maybe Apollos wanted them to learn something deeper about the priorities of the kingdom they were messed up in. And so we arrive at our last principle this morning. The Lord himself is the priority of the kingdom. Christ himself is the priority. Loved ones, let these words to Timothy and Apollos correct you. If you have wrong ideas about 
God's ministers. There's two extremes that are very clear in this passage. We can either despise those lesser leaders like Timothy, or we can have a man crush on those greater leaders like Apollos. Both attitudes are wrong. Um, Because both Timothy and Apollos and every faithful leader is doing the work of the Lord. Um, That's the vital thing, that Jesus Christ be preeminent. George Whitfield was perhaps the most famous preacher in human history next to the Apostle Paul. He led thousands upon thousands to Christ to, uh, in the Great Awakening in the, in the 18th century. God used him and men like Jonathan Edwards to absolutely transform the nation of England and of the United States. Um, he is easily among the top 10 most influential people that have ever lived. His biographer said this about Whitfield's followers when, they, when he was still alive. Quote, they urged him to retain his position, to increase his party, and continue the prominence of his name. They reminded him that if he failed to do so, he would not go down in history in the fame and the glory that were rightfully his. End quote. And here's a collection of Whitfield's typical responses to this type of nonsense. Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men if Jesus may therefore be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. I want to bring souls, not to a party, but to a sense of their undone condition by nature and to a true faith in Jesus Christ. But what is Calvin or what is Luther? Let us look above names and parties. Let Jesus be our all in all so that he be preached. I care not who is the uppermost. I know my place even to be the servant of all. Well, but that is the kingdom priority. To live with any other attitude is to live upside down. It's to live a life of frustration and disillusionment and disappointment. You were made for one reason, to glorify the risen Christ, to enter into worship with this great king. That's what it means to belong to Christ. So praise him, loved ones. Praise God for whoever you see his work being accomplished through, whether it be the lowly Timothys or the mighty Apollos. All praise be to Christ, your Redeemer. Praise be to him who was slain, who by his blood ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Praise be to him who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Praise be to the king. 
God, we thank you for Paul's travel plans. We thank you that you inspire these in your scripture so that we can see that there is a Christian way to think about everything. So Lord, apply these things to our hearts. Help us to plan. But help us to see that your plan is ultimate. Help us to say, if the Lord permits. Lord, help us to understand the true plot line that that when the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed, that opposition will certainly come. Help us to see this as an opportunity, not as something to be dreaded. And Lord, help us to have our priorities right, that we would not lift up men, but we would lift up you. That you would be our all in all, that we could truly say with Whitfield, let the name of Josh, John, Susan, perish so long as Christ remains. Let our name be forgotten so long as Christ is adored. Do this work in us, we pray, we beg. In Christ's name.